It's good to see you here in person. Thank you for those who are joining us online. My name is Jeff, and it's my privilege to be the lead pastor here at Christ Church. I don't know if you're like me, but I really enjoy watching a good fight. I enjoy watching a fight. Everything from westerns, like, you know, High Noon and just the showdown, you know, the two guys, the two gunslingers looking at each other, or watching reruns of heavyweight classics like Thrilla in Manila. I still can get chills when I hear, you know, the phrase, can you smell what the rock is cooking? And, you know, I get excited about flying elbows. And I know some people might be judging me right now, like, oh, I'm, I'm more of a lover, not a fighter. Listen, good for you. I'm glad. But if we're going down a dark alley together, you're going to be grateful that I know the move from the Karate Kid. I'm just saying, all right? Today, we see Jesus getting in a fight. He's getting in a fight with this group called the Pharisees. Now, he's not using his fists, but make no mistake, this is, this is a fight. There's been a building tension between Jesus and these people. The Pharisees were the religious elite. They were a specific sect of Jews who were looked at as the leaders, those who kept the Jewish law, who were the most pious, the most religious. When Jesus showed up on the scene, this group of people were at first kind of curious about him. And so we saw in chapter 7, they had him over to their house for a meal. And that happened again in chapter 11. They're just trying to, to feel him out. But the more they've gotten to know who Jesus is, the less they've liked what they found out. In chapter 15, this curiosity moved to grumbling because Jesus was eating with sinners. And these are like, hey, you're supposed to be a righteous person. You're supposed to be a godly person. You're supposed to be like us, and we don't associate with people like them. And Jesus is like, well, that's exactly who I came for. I came to be the God who goes after the lost sheep, the God who welcomes home the lost son. And the Pharisees were grumbling about this. But now their grumbling has been turned up a notch. Did you notice in verse 14, they're not grumbling. It says they are ridiculing him. The word that's used there for ridicule in the original Greek literally means they are turning up their noses in disdain and disgust. Why are they doing this? Well, last week we saw that Jesus was teaching about money. And he was saying how we... Those who have faith in him should not be people who hold on to money, but rather those who have an open hand and use their money as an investment account given by God to further the purposes of God. Jesus made this really profound statement that our money is not actually our money. Our money is God's money given to us by him to invest on his behalf. And these Pharisees have a problem with this. Verse 14 tells us why they have a problem with this. It says they are lovers of money. See, they did not like Jesus because Jesus was not affirming what they desired, what they wanted, what they loved. Jesus was not affirming what they thought was good for themselves. Jesus was in conflict with what they wanted and so they just decide they want to cancel Jesus. Does that sound familiar at all? 
how often in our culture we can like certain things about Jesus, but when Jesus begins to get in the way of what we want, when Jesus begins to get up in our business a little bit, when he doesn't affirm what I love and want for myself, well, now we want to cancel Jesus. But Jesus does not let himself get canceled. Jesus does not go away quietly. These people are ridiculing him, but Jesus calls them out. Jesus was talking to his disciples. These Pharisees had inserted themselves in that situation. He doesn't just take his boys and go home. No, what he decides to do is he decides to stay and confront them head on. Now we have to be careful here. Because I think sometimes we can read the Bible and we can see Jesus confronting people and we can be like, yeah, good, you go get them, you know, and, and I should be more like that. I just need to say it like it is. I just need to confront people. I just need to call people out. And so you got these Christians who think it's their job to get on blogs and get on the, you know, social media and just talk to one. We're just going to call one another out. Friends, when we're reading about Jesus calling people out, we shouldn't be identifying with Jesus as those who need to call others out. We should be identifying with the people who are getting called out. We should be identifying with the fact that we need to be confronted as well. Jesus is not, we're not to emulate his example of calling out other people. We're to listen to his voice and hear how he wants to call out us. You see, there's something going on in the Pharisees here that exists in our hearts as well. There's a tendency that they have that resides in each one of us. You see, Jesus is confronting the religious people of his day, and he wants to confront us in our religiosity that we can have in our day. I've been telling this morning's sermon, Jesus against religion. Jesus against religion. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing Jesus square off with the religious leaders, and he wants to square off with us. He wants to square off with us in the way that we can smuggle religion into him. Let's be very clear, friends. What we're going to see today, Jesus did not come to create a religion. He did not. He came to do something far more significant. And so he really does two things in these three verses. He shows the problem that religion doesn't solve, and then he shows the good news we all need to hear. As Jesus squares off against religion, he shows the problem religion doesn't solve, and then the good news that we all need to hear. So let's start by looking at the problem religion doesn't solve. Jesus starts this confrontation by describing what the Pharisees were trying to do with their religion. He says this in verse 15. You are those who justify yourselves before men. To justify yourself means to put yourself in the right. That's what justification is, right? It's saying that, that you're in the right. If someone gets taken to court for an action that they said was in their self-defense, the jury is tasked with determining were they actually justified in that defense. Were they in the right or were they not? Are they going to be justified or not? And so justification is this idea of putting yourself in 
the right. And this is what religion is after. Religion is after giving you the right rules to follow to show how you can be the right kind of person. That's what religion is. Religion wants to give you a measuring stick. It wants to say, here's how you measure up. All religions do this in various ways, right? Certainly what the Pharisees prescribed as the right set of rules would be different than what a Muslim imam would prescribe as the right kind of rules. But fundamentally, religion is all doing the same thing. They're giving you a measuring stick. They're giving you a way to justify yourself, a way to show whether you're in the right or not. There's typically three kind of responses that people can have to religion. One, people can embrace the rules. Yes, I affirm these are good rules, and they can feel like I'm following the rules. So they can know the rules, and they can follow the rules. That's what these Pharisees were. They, they thought they knew all the right rules, and they thought they were doing all the right rules. And so what? They felt they were superior to others. They felt that they were better than others because they were doing a better job keeping the rules. But in their superiority, in all their superiority, there can also be a hinge of insecurity. Often we need to feel superior to other people in order to try to feel good about ourselves. Superiority is often an expression of insecurity. You see, when you're feeling like, hey, I know the rules and I'm doing all the rules, there's always that hinge of insecurity of, well, am I actually doing good enough? Am I actually keeping all the right rules? Am I missing one? Right? If you feel like you know the rules and you're doing the rules, there's always this sense of, well, maybe I'm not doing it. And you're worried about being exposed as a fake. That's why people who are superior and think they're better than everyone's are often the worst and listen to criticism. They don't want to hear criticized because they're so insecure, they're scared about being found out. That's one response we can have to religion. Another response we can have to religion is, okay, we know the rules. Yes, I affirm these are the right rules, and I know that I'm not following them at all. And we feel like failures. We feel like we are blowing it. We feel like we mess up. We go through life on a consistent guilt trip beating ourselves up all the time. That's also a place of insecurity. Or you can have the person who's like, listen, I don't care about religion at all. I don't think there are any rules, and so I'm not following anything. I'm just living how I want. On the one hand, they would be less, you know, a little more secure, you would think. However, I would argue that that person still has a religion. They still have something that they're following. Right? Even if you say you don't follow any religion at all, you do believe there are certain things that are, that are right to do, don't you? And you do believe there are certain things that are wrong to do, don't you? It's the same thing. You're still following right and wrong. You're still, you're still trying to measure yourself against a measuring stick. It might not be a formal religion. It's an informal religion that you've created in your own mind. But either way, you're still being religious. You're still trying to use that measuring stick to see how you measure up. This is all the same. This is all the same. Like the Pharisees, we all, even though we respond to religion in different ways, we can all have this sense where we feel like we need to justify 
ourselves. We need to justify ourselves. If we can just find the right thing to do, then I'll do enough. Then I'll be able to be enough. Then I'll finally be good enough. Here's the problem that that religion doesn't solve. Here's the problem that doesn't solve. If we are trying to justify ourselves, the problem with that is we know ourselves a little too well. See, we know not just the good behavior we do, not just the good things that other people see, we know the problems we can have in our own heart. We know the things that go on that maybe no one else sees. And to make that even worse, not only do we know it, God knows it too. That's why Jesus says in verse 15, he says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You see, these Pharisees, they were praised for how well they kept the law. But Jesus is saying that, hey, listen, you might be keeping all those laws, you might be getting praise, you might be exalted amongst men for that, but I know your heart, and so what I see is an abomination. He's not condemning them for the good things they did. No, they did good things. He's not denying that. But he's saying that your good deeds don't cover over the sin that I know exists in your heart. Listen, if you have a carton of eggs that has rotten eggs in it, you can spray perfume all over that carton of eggs. And you might be able to hide the smell of rotten eggs. It, it might, it might, that carton might smell good. But that doesn't change the fact that inside that carton are a bunch of rotten eggs. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, if these Pharisees had been honest with themselves, they would know that no matter how much good they did, no matter how nice they smelled to others, inside all of our hearts are a bunch of rotten eggs. It doesn't mean that we do bad things all the time. No, I think most people are good. I think most people are decent and kind. But I think if we're honest, we also know there can be rottenness that exists. I don't think I'm the only one. I mean, if I'm driving and you cut me off in traffic, let's just say there might be some rottenness that I'm going to be tempted to come out in my heart. We can all have these things. We can all have these tendencies. And so religion doesn't solve our problem because religion just points us to ourselves. And that's a problem because we're the problem. Friends, your biggest problem in life is not the other people around you. It's not the situations you go in. Your biggest problem in life is yourself. It's what exists in our own hearts. We can be our own worst enemies. And so this really creates this tremendous problem. I think about the movie Saving Private Ryan and how it ends on what I think is a very, just a very haunting note. The movie Private Ryan, if you remember that movie, it was a World War II movie. It's been out for like 20 years, so I don't feel bad talking about movies. It's been out for that long. If you haven't seen it at this point, that's on you. So spoiler alert, I don't care. But anyways, the movie's about this uh, private, 
Ryan, played by Matt Damon, who this group of men, led by Tom Hanks, they go out to save him because all his brothers had died, and so they want to save him to bring him back to his family. So they go, and in the process of going to save Private Ryan, this group of soldiers, they all die. They all die. And as Tom Hanks, the last one to die, he looks at Private Ryan, looks at Matt Damon, and just tells him, earn this, earn this. Earn all that's been done. Be worthy enough for all that's done. You better be good enough after all that's been given to you. And then the movie, movie ends, the final scene is with Private Ryan as an old man. He's in a graveyard looking at the gravestones of these people and he's asking his family, have I been good enough? Have I been worthy? What a haunting way to live. To feel like, have I, have I done enough? Have I been good enough? Because how much is ever enough? What a burden to have. And yet I think we can all be haunted by the same thing. We can all feel like, man, if people really knew me, like I know me, people would write me off. People would not accept me. We might feel like we do some good things, but we just never feel like we're enough. And no amount of religion will ever solve that. Because it's just going to give you another measuring stick. And you're just going to continue to see how you don't measure up. Friends, self-justification, trying to find ways within ourselves to feel right about ourselves, will never give us a satisfying answer. That's the problem that religion doesn't solve. But here is the good news that we all need. Here's the good news that we all need. Jesus doesn't say, he doesn't lean with the fact that, hey, listen, God knows your hearts, and so you're in trouble. That's not where he leaves them. No, he takes them in verse 16. He takes them here. He says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. Now Jesus is an Israelite talking to a bunch of Israelites. And so for them, as he is talking about the law and the prophets, he, here's what that means to them. The law would have been the Jewish Torah, been the law of God given to Moses. The prophets would have been people sent by God to speak his words to his people. And so when we see the law and the prophets, that's another way of saying for us, all the books in the Bible known as the Old Testament. All the books that were written before Jesus came. And so what Jesus is saying is, listen, you, you have all these books. And in these books, the, the, in the law and the prophets, these were all in effect until John came. But now John's come, there's something else that's here. The kingdom of God has now come. Now this is not a new idea. The kingdom of God is spoken about in the Law and the Prophets. The kingdom of God is spoken about repeatedly in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 1 starts with God creating the world and being established as the king over everything. It's Genesis 1 and 2. Then in Genesis chapter 3, Satan shows up on the scene and what does he do? He tempts Adam and Eve, the first humans, he tempts them to rebel against the kingship of God. He tempts them to assert 
their independence against God. And they listen to his voice and they do. And so the kingdom of God that had been established, that kingdom is now in conflict. That kingdom is now lost as they listen to the voice of the deceiver. But then Genesis chapter 3 ends with this promise. Though the kingdom of God's been lost, it, it, it points forward to how God's going to come again as the king to reestablish that which has been lost. And so in Genesis chapter 3, God says this to Satan. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's promising to Satan, hey, listen, I'm going to send an offspring who's going to undo what you did. He's going to be hurt by you. It gets hurt to have your heel bruised, but ultimately he's going to conquer you because he's going to bruise your head, and when your head gets bruised, you're dead. He's telling him he's going to reverse the curse that Satan had brought on the world. In Genesis 49.10, God promises that, hey, listen, there's going to be a day coming when Shiloh will come. Shiloh in Hebrew means the one to whom it belongs. God promises that the one to whom the world belongs, the rightful one, the rightful ruler, the true king, the true monarch, there's a day coming when, when he's going to come to establish God's rule once again. God promised David, Israel's great king, that this son would come through his line, would come through the tribe of Judah, like we sang about earlier today. He promised this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. He tells David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. It says there's a king who's coming who's going to establish God's kingdom forever. This isn't going to be a kingdom like we have on earth, that kingdoms come and go. This is going to be an eternal kingdom. And then the prophet Isaiah says that this is who this king is going to be. Isaiah chapter 9, for to us a child is given, to us a son is born, and the government is, shall be on his shoulders. And he should be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This king is going to come as a child but don't make any kind of mistake. This child is not just any child. This child is also the mighty God. This mighty God's going to come. God himself is going to come. And he's going to once again establish God's eternal kingdom. This is what the whole Old Testament is about. It's all about how God is going to come. And is once again going to reestablish that which had been lost in the garden. And so John comes, John the baptizer. He's the last great prophet, and it was his responsibility given by God to say, listen, pay attention, the king is
about to appear. All that the law and all that the prophets have been speaking about for thousands of years, all these things that we've been looking forward to, it's all about to come true. That's John's job. And then Jesus shows up. And what has Jesus been doing? What's he been doing throughout this whole gospel? He's been saying again and again and again, the kingdom of God is here. It's not coming anymore. The kingdom of God is here. Why is he saying that? Because he is the king. He is the king who has come to establish God's eternal kingdom. And he says that this is good news. He says that him coming as the king to restore that which had been lost. He says this is the good news of the kingdom. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm surprised that he says this is good news. Because if there's a kingdom that had been lost by rebellion, wouldn't you expect that the king who's coming back is coming back to crush those who rebelled against him? I think about the story of the king Odysseus from Greek mythology. He was gone for many years. And when he comes back, his kingdom's been lost. There's usurpers on the throne. There's rebels all around. And what does he do? He cleans house. There's a bloodbath. He wrecks shop. The king coming back was not good news for the rebels. It was bad news. Friends, the king coming back should be bad news for us. That's what we should expect. It's popular in our culture to have this fuzzy idea like, oh, you know, we're all God's children. We need to understand the Bible does not describe us all as God's children. The Bible says we're all God's enemies. That's who we are naturally. We're all enemies of God because we want to assert our independence against God. We want to rebel against Him. That's what exists in all of our hearts. We should expect it to be bad news, but it's not. No, Jesus comes back and says it's good news. Why? Because he's not the king like King Odysseus. He's not the king who comes to kill rebels. He's the one who came to rescue them. He's the one who comes not to judge this world, but as he says in John chapter 12, verse 27, I did not come to judge the world, I came to save the world. He's the king that we saw in Luke chapter 15, who goes after the lost coin and the lost sheep and welcomes home the lost son. He's the king who we saw in chapter 14, who has thrown a wedding feast and he wants to invite all of the sinners, all of the people who have rejected him, who rebel against him. He's the king who wants to welcome them in. See, our king, yes, he has a crown, but his crown was a crown of thorns. He, he holds a scepter, but his scepter is the iron spikes driven through his hands. And yes, he is on a throne, but his throne is the wood of the cross. Friends, we have a king who came and gave his life for us. Instead of wrecking shop, he was wrecked on our behalf. Instead of our blood flowing, he came to give his blood for us.
Jesus was judged on our behalf as God put our sin upon him on the cross and he was crushed as we should have been he experienced this is our king this is our king and this is why he says this is good news what is news news is the report of something that has happened this is why we should never confuse Jesus with good advice. He didn't come to give us good advice about how we should live. He didn't come to set a good example about the right things that we should do. He came to be good news. In Jesus, something has happened. He has done something. On the cross, He accomplished our salvation as He gave His life for ours. And so because of that, he comes proclaiming good news. Friends, the good news is that God's kingdom is the kingdom of salvation. That when Jesus is your king, you do not experience judgment for your sin. You experience the forgiveness of your sin. God's kingdom is the kingdom where we're not cast out because we're not good enough. It's the kingdom where we're welcomed in because God's love is big enough. See, religion is all about this idea of how can we be enough? How can we do enough? How can we be good enough? It's, it's looking to self. The message of Jesus is good news because it says, stop looking at you and start looking at me. It's not about you being good enough. It's about the fact that in my cross, I am always enough. Friends, Jesus is always enough. And so he does not call us to self-justify. He calls us to rely on him by faith. We are justified before God, not by being religious and following the right rules. We're justified by God because we have the right man on our side. We are justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And so because of that, we must make our choice. We must make our choice. This is what Jesus says in Luke 16, 16. As he says this good news, here's what he says. He says this confronts us with a choice. He says everyone forces his way into it. There's two ways we can take that statement. Be like, okay, this kingdom's come, we have to force our way into it. Well, that doesn't make any kind of sense with the rest of the Bible. We don't force our way into anything. We're being invited into this kingdom by Jesus. The other way to take this, and the way that most commentators would say, is that it's not you are trying to force your way in. It's that this kingdom has shown up, and now you're forced to make a decision about it. This kingdom is confronting us with a decision. Will we live trying to self-justify, or will we live with Jesus as we rely? Are we going to self-rely or Jesus-rely? That's the decision that's in front of us. Religion only offers salvation by self-effort. Jesus offers us salvation by his effort. What's our move? What's our choice? Which direction are we going to go? And as I ask us that, friends, that's not just a question for people who are non-Christians. 
It is a question for non-Christians. If you are listening to this, either online or in person, and you've yet to put your faith in Jesus, this is a question that is confronting you. Will you continue to rely on yourself? Will you continue to live by an eternal barometer about how good you are? Will you continue to try to be good enough? Or will you believe today that Jesus is enough? That that is a question for non-Christians, but also, friends, I've been a Christian for 20 years. It's a question I need to be confronted with continually as well. Because guess what? Even though we have placed our faith in Christ, isn't it so easy to begin to place our faith in ourselves as well? Isn't it so easy to go from religion, from, from Jesus, and start drifting back into a more religious mindset? Isn't it so easy to, when we have good dates, to feel like we're close to God? Man, I read my Bible today. I prayed today. I even prayed for other people today. All those things I said I'll pray for you about, I actually did that today. I was patient. I was loving. I was kind. Someone cut me off in traffic. I didn't give them any hand gestures except, uh, you know, I love you gesture, right? And guess, I, I even shared about, I didn't back down. I, I shared about Jesus with my coworkers, and they got saved. We, we had a baptism revival in my workplace. It was a great day. God, you must be pleased with me. And we come into church feeling good today, ready to worship today. But then we have bad days. We have days where we give in to anger and voice our frustration and tear people down. We have days where we give in to lust and look at things and objectify other people in ways that demeans them as an image bearer of God. We have days where we choose to lie because we just rather get ourselves off the hook and do what's easy instead of say what's right. We have days where we lose it, where we blow it, where we mess up. I don't even know if I can go to church today. I, I just need to stay home and kind of sit in my stink. I need to sit here and I just need to feel bad about myself because I've blown it. And I'm so far from God. Friends, if we are relating to God based upon our good days and our bad days, we are no longer trusting in Christ. We are now looking at ourselves. We have drifted from Jesus straight back into religion. One of our greatest temptations in life as Christians is to get our eyes off of Christ and to judge ourselves based upon ourselves. But here's what we have to understand. Here's, friends, here's what Jesus is saying to us in this verse. Here's what I hope we take home and what we live out of. The good news of Jesus is that we can never be good enough that we do not need him, and we can never be bad enough that we're out of reach of him. We're never good enough not to need him, and we're never bad enough to be out of reach of him. Our good days don't qualify us, nor do our bad days disqualify us, because guess what? It ain't about us. We get into the kingdom not by being good people. We get into the kingdom by believing the good news. Now, that doesn't mean that how we live doesn't matter. 
No, it certainly does. We're going to get into that next week. I, this whole section, really, verse 14, goes all the way down to verse 18. It's kind of one complete thought. But Jesus dropped so much bombs here that I couldn't get it all in one sermon. So verse 17, 18 is its whole, whole thing next week. Y'all want to come back. When we understand that we've been forgiven by God, that should lead us to live empowered lives. We're going to look at that. But we should never confuse, we should never confuse the practice of our faith with the object of our faith. Let me say that again because it's really important. We should never confuse the practice of our faith with the object of our faith. If I practice basketball with LeBron James every single day, I probably would get better. My practice of basketball would be improved. But if I then thought, hey, listen, I've been practicing with LeBron James and I've, I've been doing a good job practicing, I'm ready to go be an NBA player, it's like, well, buddy, you're 5'10 and white. Good job. You know, like, it ain't happening. We should never confuse the practice of our faith with the object of our faith. My confidence as I'm practicing with LeBron James it should not be in how I'm going to practice, I'm going to be able to do what he does. No. God's like, hey, he's a great player. I should want him to come play for my teams. Maybe he can turn things around for the Sixers. Right? Like, friends, when we are with Jesus, yes, as we walk with him, yes, as we live with him, yes, as we're with him, hopefully he will help us, and yes, he will help us become better people. He will help us as we practice our faith, we will improve. But let's make no mistake, we're not the ones whose performance matters. We're not the one who are in the game. He's on the court playing on our behalf. And so we should never confuse the practice of our faith with the object of our faith. We practice our faith, but Jesus is our faith. He's the one we should be confident in. So here's how you apply this message. Here's how you apply what Jesus is saying here. When you wake up tomorrow, you look in the mirror. And you don't look in the mirror trying to have a talk track about how you're going to be enough today. You look in the mirror and you say, no matter what happens today, Jesus is enough. And when you go to bed that night, you lie down in sleep and in peace not because of what you've done throughout the day, but because Jesus has been enough for you that day. Friends, you need to know before God right now, if you've placed your faith in Christ, if your life is hid in Jesus, then God looks at you. And because Jesus is always enough, God looks at you and says, you are enough. You are enough. You are enough. Because in Christ, Jesus is always enough. And so if we're hid in Him, then friends, oh, His righteous robes cover over us. And no matter how sinful we think we are, the good news of the kingdom of God is that when we're in that kingdom, when we're in Christ, He covers us. And Jesus is always enough. Let's pray.